0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Man, this has been a week. Whoa. Okay, so much happening. Um, The lawsuit filed uh, against Scientology, other things going on behind the scenes. Uh, the Nexium case uh, came to uh, conclusion and Keith Regnier was found guilty on all charges after only four hours of jury deliberation, which basically tells you the jury got their instructions, walked back to the room, got settled in, filled out their forms, all looked at each other and said, yeah, you think? Yeah, I think so too. Everybody raised their hand and that was it. I mean, it was that open and shut. And uh, Keith Ranier, of course, being somebody who ripped off a lot of Scientology principles for his own business consulting uh, cult. It was not a religious-based cult. It was called Nexium, and he is complete scum of the earth and deserves every single minute that he will get in jail for the crimes he committed against women and men also, uh, and children. So uh, goodbye, Keith Ranier justice was served. And we really, really hope that there will be similar results with these lawsuits. While they are not criminal laws, criminal cases brought against David Miscavige and the Church of Scientology, uh, we are still hoping that these things go all the way with depositions. Perhaps Shelley Miscavige might get wrangled in on this, etc. There are, there will not be, for reasons that will become clear in the probably not too distant future, you will not see me talking a lot or even commenting a lot any further than what I just said about these lawsuits against Scientology. Know that I am definitely root, root behind the scenes on all of this, but there are other things going on too that I'm involved in. Uh, and that's all I can really say about it, as far as why I'm not going to be commenting a whole lot about this in the future. So, um, so let's just kind of see how this whole thing rolls out. I am very much hoping for a positive result. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, don't follow me on Twitter. Aren't aren't necessarily keeping up on all the Scientology news. This initial lawsuit that's been filed against the church for kidnapping and false imprisonment and various other things that is getting all this wonderful media attention right now is only the first of many lawsuits that are coming. So there's just gonna be kind of an avalanche of this. And I am quite sure that with the Nexium case, I mean the timing was just perfect. I'm sure with the with the verdict rendered on the Nexium case, I am positive that David Miscavige is absolutely pissed in his pants right now, and with good reason. Uh, and if he's not, well, that just shows that he should be. <laughs> anyway, uh, that all being said, <laughs> um, I got some great questions. We're not going to be doing flash answers this week, so I'm going to be um, going through some big questions this week, a little bit more than usual. And uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Oh, and by the way... Um, the podcast I did this week with Clint uh, Haycock, uh, second one that I've done with him, he's a former evangelical uh, minister, I highly, highly recommend that you listen to that because if you're following me just to know about Scientology, you're really limiting the education and entertainment that is possible on this channel. And in this uh, episode of the Sensibly Speaking podcast that I just posted yesterday, we talk about the evangelical agenda. It's a real thing. It's not conspiracy theory. We go over all of it. These people are hiding in plain sight. They are very loud and proud about it. And I really, really want you guys to know about this stuff, because if you think Scientology is bad, and it is, and you think th- things like Nexeme are bad, and they are... There's a whole bigger movement going on here in the U.S. and to a degree around the world that you guys should really be aware of. Um, So anyway, check out that podcast. That's all I'll say about that. Now let's get on with your questions. Eric, Scientology seems to be really bad at public relations. The church presents itself in an incredibly awkward, belligerent, and alienating way. I remember you mentioning on the podcast that Scientologists honestly don't know how creepy they come across. What surprises me is how bad they are at this despite having had so many high-profile celebrity members. I would think someone like Will Smith would take David Miscavige aside and be like, hey man, we got to talk about our presentation to the world. I find it so weird that celebrities who carefully manage their image don't get how crummy the church is at doing that. Do you have any thoughts? Keep up the good work. Oh, yeah, I got a few thoughts. Um, Okay, like I did say before, the church members definitely are not aware because they are in a bubble world and are very much in tune with an us versus them mentality, which is a combative uh, mentality. It, 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 it It makes people, you know, who are not in your group enemies or at least people to be kept at a distance. And, um, and so they don't see, are not aware, and will not listen to criticism of their group. If you're a friend of a Scientologist and you start trying to talk honestly with them about the subject, they will shut you down 100% of the time. Um, or that, and whether it's just them going ma meh, 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 or they just get a blank look on their face, the eyes kind of glaze over, or they'll actually uh, take you on and say, listen, you need to knock that off. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just listening to a bunch of lies from the media, blah, 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 right? So, um, so that's the kind of response you'll get from the lower level folks, when it comes to the Sea Org, of course, these people are not even aware of what's being said about Scientology in the big wide world. They are literally clueless on the entire topic. They don't watch TV. They don't necessarily get on the internet very much. And the internet that they do get is filtered so they can't see Scientology-related stories or anything critical of the church. So the, this is called information control or milieu control. It is very important to cult indoctrination and control. And... Um, and you know, Lifton, Hassan, all these guys have explained this in great detail. So, so that's the lower level guys. Now, when it comes to celebrities, like your questions asking about here, uh, these guys have to be aware. But more importantly, their press agents and so and PR people have to be aware of their public image, as you said. And so, uh, let's let's talk a little bit of history here, and I'll sort of demonstrate why it is that. Um, that you don't see a lot of celebs who are in Scientology talking about Scientology. Tom Cruise got the Freedom Medal of Valor I think it was in 2004, 2005. And he went on a tear, man. He just was like going to promote Scientology. He was going to disseminate it like crazy. He was going to talk about it. You know, I jumped around on Oprah's couch, but then he went on Matt Lauer and told him how glib he was and how Brooke Shields didn't know what she was talking about with the, and shouldn't be on psych medications and psychotropics were horrible. And he was the expert on it and he knew all about it. and Nobody else did and blah, 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 right? So, He made a total fool of himself, and it's not like he wasn't aware of the backlash of that, but Tom Cruise, being a religious fanatic, kept going. You know, he wanted to persist on this because he thought, well, I'm going to take the shellackings, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, Well, that didn't really work out too well, and uh, very shortly after, he was, if I remember right, I don't remember all the specifics of this, but he had an office or a production company or some kind of connection, I think it was with Paramount. And they basically threatened to kick him off the, off the studio a lot, like not work with him anymore. Like It was like a shutdown. It was like, look, dude, you need to knock it off. And here's the thing about Hollywood. There is no movie star who has ultimate power when it comes to uh, getting productions made, getting movies made, uh, or their own career. Uh, if you don't fall in line with the studio system, I mean, there's an independent film system. It's a complicated, multi-layered thing. I'm, I'm simplifying a lot of stuff when I say this. But basically, if you don't fall in line with the studio system and you don't play ball and shut your mouth when they tell you to, then you might find yourself out of a career. And that even includes somebody as, as you know, infamously famous as Tom Cruise. Uh, they can't afford to be bucking that system. There is no individual who is bigger than that system. And that system is what feeds us the entertainment. So if those movie stars or actors or whatever want to be part of that system, they've got to integrate and play ball with the other people. And if they're seen as radical extremists, and that was definitely what Tom Cruise was viewed as, then that is going to impact sales of movie tickets and things like that. And that is where, that's really the only thing the studio cares about. They don't care about anybody's religion or politics, but they do care about their bottom line. And if some movie star is running around saying stuff that's going to affect their bottom line, then that movie star is going to hear about it and they're going to be told, you know, yank the leash, right? Right that's how that works and then the then the star can either go start his own production company which Tom Cruise tried to do uh, as I understand it kind of tanked or didn't really do so great maybe it's still going out it's not something I have a whole lot of information about but um but he you know he's still making the movies but you'll notice that ever since that time like 2006 seven eight about I don't know if I remember totally correctly probably around eight or nine definitely by 2010 zip he had a zip zipper on his mouth again right and tom cruise was the one who remember my interview with mark headley tom cruise was the one who called all the other celebrities together back in 2004 or 5 and blackmailed them into hey you guys better pull finger and start talking about scientology and disseminating and opening missions and making this happen and using your star power to, to you know umph this well that was a fantastic mega failure epic failure um, you know, Jenna Elfman opened a mission. Kirstie Alley, I think, did something. You know, a couple of guys made some photo, did a few photo ops. They they do events at Celebrity Center, but you know, when it comes to being asked about Scientology, <laughs> uh, they shut it all down, right? You'll notice that every single one of these celebrities, when they give uh, celebrity interviews, go on talk shows, talk in Vanity Fair, they don't talk about Scientology, or if they do. They'll only keep it to a couple very carefully controlled lines that are given to them by Osa. And Osa's kind of rolling with this and going, okay, well, here's what to say, which is anybody who's against us is just a religious bigot. Anybody who criticizes the church doesn't know what they're talking about, you know, this kind of crap. So um, so so it is a very, very carefully stage-managed thing for the celebrities and how they relate to the rest of the world. Now, as Scientologists, except for Tom Cruise, none of these people have any pull with David Miscavige. I mean, look at what happened with Leah. She actually met with David personally, went over stuff. He promised her the sun, moon, and stars. He promised her a rose garden, said, we well, I'll handle all this stuff, and proceeded to not do so. Sent her to flag. She got mega sec checking, truth rundown you know, slapped around, get in line or you're for it. Uh, And she was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to get in line and I'm not for it. You know, screw you guys. And off she went. And she took her whole family with her. And this is all the backlash, right? They created all of that. If If David Miscavige had actually listened to her, none of this would be happening right now. None of it. If he had opened up about where Shelley was, if he had been at least a little bit honest, a little bit open to receiving some criticism and receiving some, you know, actually at the time, Leah was trying to offer somewhat constructive criticism. She was like, hey, what the hell's going on here? This Tom Cruise guy is making as a laughing stock. Scientology is not, you know, this isn't how to do this. And David Miskadris was like, yeah, whatever, you know, basically. Um, so she tried and look what happened So these other celebrities do not have clout like that within the world of Scientology you know you get it's it's kind of a funny thing it's so you know we it, it's so easy to forget that we are talking about a destructive cult. It's a cult. So the celebrities are just people in the end they're just just like you and me actually if you actually sit and talk to them, and kind of take that out of the equation, you find that they got the same problems with their kids, with their spouses, with their jobs, with stress, anxiety. I mean, in fact, more so for because of their public image and the and the vast amount of responsibility and pressure that that puts on them, uh, and also all the stalking and harassment that celebrities get. You know, TMZ and all those guys. I mean, it's like being in a little cult, being in the world of celebrity. And then you're in a cult being in Scientology, I mean, ugh, right? So so David Miscavige is not in a place where he's going to listen to anybody telling him what to do. He was educated by L. Ron Hubbard. He's read Hubbard's policies. He's got his own ideas and flourishes that he puts on these policies. He always takes everything Hubbard wrote and interprets it in the worst possible way. And that's how he runs Scientology, and he is not into being questioned or being dictated to or being or receiving constructive criticism from anyone. And I don't know, obviously I have zero inside line on what kind of conversations he and Tom Cruise have, but clearly Tom Cruise has been um, defanged as far as his you know, aggressive bulldog Scientology dissemination tactics. Uh, so that's where that stands, and that's why David Miscavige, as a cult leader, which is what he is, he's at the top of the pyramid. The celebrities are way below him as far as he's concerned, and that's why you're not going to see any change of course, no matter how many celebrities go talking to him and telling him, hey, man, you, you know, let's, let's work something out here. Let's, let's talk about our presentation to the world. He's going to be like, what do you mean? You know, and he's going to get that look in his eyes and it's going to be like, you know, keep talking, buddy, and you're just adding to how many intensives of sex checking you're going to get at Flag or at Celebrity Center. That's David Miscavige's attitude about the whole thing, as far as I can tell and based on my, you know, experience and knowledge about Scientology. So, um, you know, I could be wrong about these things, but I don't think I am. (laughs) So, and we see the results of that. And that's why I, you know, that's why I think that my take on this is probably about as accurate as as you can get. Kevin Zay, what are your thoughts on Stephen Anderson and the likes of the NIFB movement, the group that is hosting the Make America Straight Again conference on June 16th in Orlando? Are they just an ultra-conservative Baptist sect, or have they moved past that into the realm of dangerous cults? Thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, This is a deep, Dive subject that I have not done a deep dive on. I have seen Stephen Anderson many, many times. I've been watching this guy for years. He is absolutely loony, and uh, the things that he preaches are definitely straight up biblical literalism. I mean, this guy will take the exact words of whatever edition of the Bible he thinks is the is the right one, and he just goes to town. and He is passionate and adamant about. The fact that you have to literally do everything it says. And then, like David Miscavige with Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard, Stephen Anderson takes the worst possible interpretation of biblical scripture to uh, interpret that to mean things like uh, all homosexuals, anybody in the LGBT community must die. They must be put to death. This is the first time I've ever shown a video clip on my critical Q&A show, and I want you to see this so you'll see Steven Anderson in his own words. I'll, I'll put it this way. Any man who would have sex with another man would have sex with an animal. I don't know. But that's that, is true. that is true. About five or 10 years ago, a lot of the stuff that I preached, people thought it was too radical. Now, to me, LGBT stands for let God burn them. Right. But now they're starting to see, oh, wow, he's right. But you say, well, it's LGBTQ. Well, then you could say, let God burn them quickly. I don't have any advice for homosexuals except to put a bullet in your own head so that you don't molest my kids or anyone else's kids. Uncensored, just raw Bible preaching. NIFB stands for New Independent Fundamental Baptist. And this group, as far as I can tell, based on the leader alone, is absolutely, uh, if not a destructive cult, it is racing to become a destructive cult as rapidly as possible. But I I think it's already there. You can't have somebody preaching hate like that and not be abusing his followers to one degree or another. But I don't have intimate knowledge of how the abuse might be playing out within the membership. Us versus them, check. Fomenting hate, check. We have the only knowledge that matters anywhere in the world. We have the sacred truth and everybody else has it wrong. Check, right? I mean, you can just kind of go down the checklist and and see that there's a number of very, very troubling indicators with this group. Now, the thing about the NIFB is uh, statistically, from what I could find on Rational Wiki and other places when I did just a cursory look at this, there's only about 150 members in this congregation as of 2015. So we're talking about a statistically insignificant number of people here. But this group is demonstrative of the kind of things I was talking about in the podcast I did this week about the evangelical agenda. These people definitely fit into that group of people, which is a much larger group of people. The NIFB is, is a great example of a group who are um, or Stephen Anderson's group, rather, is a group of people who are um, not associated with anybody, any other groups, and yet they're part of this evangelical movement, right? These Bible literalists and literalists and that kind of thing. So Anderson's a real winner of a preacher. He doesn't really care who he offends because he truly believes, apparently, or at least he puts out that he truly believes that he is on the side of the Lord And he is the righteous one. And what he says is what the Bible says. And therefore, it must be truth. And so then you get, you know, then you get things like praying for death for people, right? The Bible tells him that he has to pray to God to kill these people, right? If they are somehow violating the religious, biblical scripture as far as he uh, interprets it. We've got quotes like... uh, Using, from the pulpit, terms like libtard, faggot, queer, sissy, retard, and homo to describe people, including other pastors and President Obama, and then claiming that this is biblical language. Uh, Generalizing classes of people, quote, all actors are sodomite faggots, and people who don't like me are homos. I mean, this is the way this guy talks, right? So, yeah. That's pretty much all I have to say about this guy. I think you guys can draw your own conclusions on that. A.W. Recently, I found a paper in my family's house with a long quote from LRH on it. Quote, In Scientology, you are dealing with a specialized group, specially selected. Actually, these people are all pre-selected out of the races on Earth today. It isn't a cross-selection of the population at all. It's a very great minority of the population. As these people move up to more advanced levels of training, a further selection takes place. Their confront, their persistence, come up. Just look at the things that are required of one of these people. Look at the things that have been required of you in actual fact, as sticking with it despite the disappointments and upsets and trouble you've had. If you don't think that's a process of pre-selection, you should take a look at it someday. Just going on being in Scientology is a process of pre-selection. It has its rewards, but it also has its liabilities. And those that have survived this particular process have simply demonstrated the fact that they will obviously someday make OT. End quote. The Relationship of Training to OT, Lecture of November 7, 1963. Is Hubbard implying that Scientologists are pre-selected by a higher power? I know they don't believe in God, but my family believes in a higher power of some kind. And if that's what he's saying, was I not meant to be a Scientologist? And wouldn't the logic there be that people who aren't Scientologists or those who leave aren't supposed to be? Additionally, the section with disappointments, upsets, and trouble is pretty interesting. It would seem as though being dissatisfied with Scientology is built into the core of the religion. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Hey, thanks, uh, AW. So, okay. First off, no, I don't think that there's a higher power involved. I think what Hubbard is saying here when he says, um, if you don't think that's a process of pre-selection, you should take a look at it someday. He's talking about the travails, the gauntlet you have to run. When you, okay, when you get into Scientology, you have to go through this training process and you go into auditing and auditing can be difficult and training can be difficult and there's a lot of demands made on you. I did a whole long podcast about some of the nonsense that goes on in the training. It's not just a matter of showing up, reading some books, and going home and thinking about it. They are all over you, and you have all kinds of little tests along the way that you have to pass in order to sort of gain and prove your uh, loyal Scientologist, right, to gain status in Scientology. That's the pre-selection process that Hubbard, that I believe Hubbard is referring to here. That if you can make it through all of the nonsense that they throw at you, all the difficulties and stuff, then that is um, proof that you are one of the good guys. You're one of the ones who's meant to be on board. You deserve to be in our in-group and those who can't cut the mustard, so to speak, well, they're out of here, right? They didn't make it. They didn't make the grade. And so, you know, to hell with them. Hubbard spoke, you know, in many, many places about how inclusive Scientology is supposed to be, how everybody's supposed to be a Scientologist. Miscavige, uh, I don't know if Hubbard ever said this, but Miscavige has said that uh, everybody's a Scientologist. They just don't know it yet. But, (laughs) Uh, Scientologists also sort of think of themselves as this sort of elite of planet Earth. And this also is based on a Hubbard quote, where he talks about auditors and how auditors are the upper 10th of the upper 20th of, percentile of, of intelligent human beings. And, and uh, you know, the, the only the tigers survive and even they have a hard time. And so we've got to be tigers in Scientology, rough, tough, and hard. And Win or die in the attempt. So, so there's a lot of language and a lot of uh, flavor of it's a difficult thing to be a Scientologist. And that, and that when he talks about the disappointments, upsets, and trouble, he's talking both internally and externally. Internally, you have to get all through this, all this stuff, and and it can be rough. And sometimes people have a bad session, or they have a bad training session, or they. Just get fed up with some part of the organization screwing around with them, and they just go. They blow. They take off. They're done. They don't want to do it. They don't want to deal with it anymore. They don't want to hear about it. And of course, like any group, any, especially, you know, with all the in-group folks, if you take off or leave, then you are reviled and ridiculed and thought less of. And this is another way that Hubbard does that and sort of encourages that kind of attitude is we're the tough ones. We're the ones who really had to work for this and get through it despite all the barriers. And I think that's what he's talking about in this quote here. Uh, Hubbard was not into fate, kismet, uh, higher power selection, anything like that. He ridiculed that kind of thing all the time. So uh, yeah, I I think that addresses your question here. So thank you very much for asking that. And I hope that all made sense. Dan Williams. There's something that has been bugging me recently in regards to OT8 specifically. It is my understanding that at the inception, or perhaps at the end of the course, that a person going through OT8 at some point comes to a realization that it was them all along who was responsible for these thetans latching onto our spirits, and it was us that were creating them all along. My question is this. How is this in any way not contradictory to what is established in the doctrine of OT3? In OT3, it is revealed that by using several means, Xenu trapped the souls of the inhabitants of the planet Tegiak, thus making them body thetans, and it is they that are responsible for humanity's endless suffering, roughly speaking. So does this mean that OT3 was just a made-up story from the perspective of the now enlightened OT8 member, meant as nothing more than a foreshadowing of how immoral actions can have such devastating effects? Are we supposed to sympathize with Zenu for being locked up for all eternity? Is this perhaps a metaphor for how all of us are locked up spirits and that we must atone for our wrongs indefinitely in order to obtain a state of clear, am I missing something here? Dan, I don't think you're missing something. There isn't, and this really, and I'm really glad you asked this question and asked it the way that you did because There are many OTs or Scientologists who I'm sure would look at some parts of your question and go, oh, no, that's not, or no, no, that's not. (laughs) But here's the thing about this, right, is that the OT levels are not consistent. They're not a logically integrated and consistent whole. And that was one of the big problems with people getting up to OT8 and finding out that they were just making all of it up all along, right, and that none of this stuff was ever real. Uh, but that, I don't think that was supposed to include the Xenu thing, okay? But, you know, I don't know. How do you take this? How do you interpret it? It's not like I did OT8, so I didn't see exactly what Hubbard wrote. And there have been different versions of OT8, so I didn't see what Miscavige wrote either, right? I, I, or whoever put those materials together and wrote them uh, beyond Hubbard's handwriting, right? So, um, this was one of the things, not your question about OT8 specifically, but the the fact of the of the just massive amounts of inconsistencies and logical fallacies and, and and lack of integration of this information when I first read the Ot levels and I went, what? this is one of the things that made me uh, what? you know uh, I mean this was the final straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. I was already, pretty much out the door when the, by the time I opened up the OT levels document and started reading it but it was you know once I read it it was no problem at all to say I am completely done with this crap it is a bunch of bullshit and that's exactly what I said to myself this is just logically inconsistent it doesn't match up with the lower level information the pre clear level information um, this 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 body thetan stuff and being what does clear mean? What does it mean to have these body thetans? What does it mean to have you know once you get to OT seven and then OT eight where it's all just a bunch of you know whatever? These things don't go together well. They they don't make a whole lot of sense. And so to think that these are the answers to every question you ever had about your nature and the nature of the universe and God and spirits and all that, nah, not at all. This stuff doesn't make any sense. And really, when you get down to it, that's kind of it. It doesn't make sense. You can twist and turn and push and pull and try to figure all this stuff out and, and strain your brain to make it all make sense. We're all very good at that. We can do that. And I could offer you some explanation. I could offer you five different explanations for why this makes sense. But really, it comes down to acknowledging that it doesn't make sense. This is the brainchild of L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard died a senile old man on medications and insane. These are his ravings. <laughs> and OT8, remember, was kind of a compilation of stuff that they kind of hodgepodge together. So I don't know that Hubbard even ever wrote any of that stuff about how you're just making it all up and none of that stuff actually happened to you or whatever it was that he put into OT8 or whatever he intended OT8 to be. Who knows at this point? David Miscavige, and that's about it. You know, I mean, besides the guys he's got strapped away in the hole, uh, like Ray Metoff, the old guy. You know, I think he's the one who actually put all this stuff together, but there isn't, it's not a logical whole. And so you're trying to make sense of something that really in the end, just doesn't make any sense. And that, I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out answer because I'm really trying to give you a very straight answer. Um, you know, is that don't try to strain your brain too much. It's nonsense. S.P. Sheeties. For you personally, do you have any more or less personal satisfaction generating Scientology related content, other destructive cult content, or critical thinking content? I enjoy all three, but I was wondering what was more fulfilling for you, if any. Thanks for this question. This is this is this is an interesting question. I enjoy doing everything I do. I love my job. This is my job. This is what I do. And uh and I and I just absolutely love every aspect of it. I have expressed in the past that, you know, look, I've I've talked about Scientology a lot. I've got these other things I'd like to talk about. And I don't mean by that that I'm sick and tired of deconstructing Scientology for you guys or that I can't keep talking about it or answering questions about it. But after, you know, hundreds of videos on the topic, I am certainly ready to move on to bigger and more important topics. And by that, I don't mean that the Scientology stuff isn't important, but for me now, there's been a process of recovery and catharsis in doing all of this that has resulted in me now looking at all that Scientology work and saying, at first, it was all about deconstructing all those ideas and taking it all apart for myself and for you guys. But now, I look at it as a case study of a a small microcosm of much bigger cults, much bigger issues that we face that all of us run into or deal with. And so I really enjoy trying to connect those dots or build those bridges between Scientology and these other things that I talk about, which is why you see me talking about JWs and Bill Gothard and Mormons and now evangelical Christians and other groups that I want to get into, including the non-religious cult stuff too. I want to blow up into all of that stuff. And um And all the research and all the study that I've been doing over the last many months has all been to, you know, to kind of move the ball in that direction. So I like doing all of it. I get a little frustrated sometimes when, you know, I put up videos that I've put a lot of work into. And because it doesn't have Scientology in the title, people just kind of don't click on it, don't want to see it, don't want anything to do with it. I really feel you guys are doing yourselves a disservice when you when you don't read that or look at that stuff. But you know, of course, I'm the creator. Of course, I'm going to think that, right? You guys can, you know, it's fine. You guys watch what you want to watch and and see what you want to see from me, and I get it, and I'm fine with that. I really am. But um, anyway, uh, I think that I think I I think I would say that I enjoy all of it equally, but I feel the importance of the work that I'm doing. I feel like the critical thinking work is probably the most important work I've put out there because it's the stuff that has the broadest applicability to every single human being. There isn't one person in the world who couldn't benefit from some better critical thinking skills. I think that um, the other destructive cults I have talked about, especially the the more broad religious-based stuff like the Gothard stuff, the JW stuff, um, has a broader appeal, so I feel like that's more important than the Scientology stuff. But I feel like I've built this this base of knowledge on the Scientology stuff, so you kind of have to take it all in. That's how I look at my work. Um, I don't know how other people look at it as a body of knowledge, but that's how I look at it, and. Um, And I just hope that, you know, regardless of what part of the work I've done you guys like the most or don't like, um, I'm proud of all of it. And I hope that over time, all of this work will reach the people it needs to reach to save lives, help people out, help people out of these, uh, you know, destructive cults. And I don't think, by the way, that I'm engaging in hyperbole when I say save lives, um, because some of these destructive cults are so destructive that people die in them. And that includes Scientology. So, uh, so I do look at this work as very, very important work. So I don't know, I, 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 maybe I rambled a little bit there, but I, I, that's kind of my thoughts on, on your question there. Thank you very much for asking that. Kath T, I've watched all the Q&A videos, and I don't remember seeing you ever talk about mind-crushing boredom as a factor in Scientology and cults in general. As I've learned about cults from you and John Cedars and others, I've learned that boredom seems to be a tactic rather than an aberration. I first got interested in cults on the 30th anniversary of the massacre at Jonestown in Guyana. I found Jim Jones' sermons on the internet expecting them to be captivating and enticing. In fact, they were incoherent and mind-crushingly dull. That was actually what began to intrigue me most and set me on the path of investigating more. I'd be interested in how bored you were in Scientology and what you think about boredom as a feature of Scientology and other cults. Thank you for your great work. Hey, thanks, Kath. Um, Interesting question. And let me, um, here's what comes to mind for me, is when you talk about boredom, I think Uh, monotonous, repetitious uh, nonsense being spewed by these guys in a kind of hypnotic pattern of speaking. Uh, You know, a beat, 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 beat to their language. Um, If you watch um, a guy named Stefan Molyneux on YouTube, you see the same kind of pattern to the way that he talks. There's a beat to it. It It's monotonous. It's repetitious, and it's trance-inducing. And that is the tool that I believe that you are referring to there when you're talking about this mind-crushing boredom. You look at it as a non-follower or a non-believer from the outside, and you have a more objective perspective. And you look at what they're saying, and you go, my God, this is the most repetitious, boring nonsense I've ever seen. But the followers I don't know if they showed any screen. I don't know if they showed any audience reaction shots during the Guyana thing. I've not watched Jim Jones speak for any length of time. I've seen short clips of him speaking, but um, but the sermonizing, right? And in in Scientology, this is analogous to L. Ron Hubbard's lectures, where he just goes drones on and on and on about stuff. And uh, you know, Hubbard has an idea for a lecture, and. The point could be made in a couple sentences, but he just makes, he drags it out for like an hour, hour and a half, telling all these tall tales and stories and telling stupid jokes and relating different anecdotes and stuff like that, and finally getting around and circling around to his point. And it was even as a Scientologist, I noticed that sometimes, and it was a little bit like, my God, right? Could we just get to the point here? Um, But in Scientology, of course, you're not allowed to play the tapes uh, or the lectures at one and a half speed or two, you know, double speed uh, to kind of get through it and get to the point, right? You got to listen to him in his natural tone of voice. And that's because it's trance-inducing, you know? Uh, And that is a tool of destructive cult leaders is uh, definitely because you can get somebody into a very suggestible state of mind by putting them into a trance-like state it is very, very easy to do. uh, Far too easy, in fact. And it's not just cult leaders that have noted this. This is a sales tactic, too. Um, Even Les Dane, the guy who wrote a book uh, called Big League Sales Techniques, talked about this uh, when he said that you could talk to an audience of people, and you're kind of droning on and on, and then you insert little funny or or kind of gross statements into the middle of what you're saying. And because you're sitting there and have been for quite a while nodding and talking in this sort of trance-inducing way, the audience will be sitting there nodding and going along. And you could say things like, And everybody's an idiot here, right? Oh, yeah. And you just kind of fit that in and everybody just kind of goes along and nobody's really even totally hearing exactly what you're saying anymore, you know, especially around three or four o'clock when people are most tired, most hungry most out of it, you know, in the afternoon if you're doing like a day-long seminar or something. So anyway, there's all kinds of little nuances and tricks to this, but I think that's what you're actually talking about when you're referring to the boredom there. Um, and I think you're having uh, a correct response. I mean, I'm not saying your response is wrong or anything. As as again, as an objective person looking from the outside in, you look at it and go, uh but the people inside are looking at it going, oh, it's so amazing. Oh, he's such a great speaker. I love every word he says, even though they're really not even processing what the guy's saying a whole lot anymore. You know, it's a little weird. Uh, anyway, there's, the, and again, there's a lot more nuance to it. There's a lot more going on, but um, but that's my answer to your question. So thank you very much for asking, Kath. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. Uh, If you find my work entertaining, informative, and educational, then please consider joining me on Patreon. Uh, That is what supports uh, me, my show here, keeps the lights on, keeps everything going. I very, very much appreciate all of your support out there. And if you don't want to join me on Patreon, of course, you can always just click the link below to throw me a little love via PayPal or something like that. Uh, Anyway, every little bit does help. So thanks, guys, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.